From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. Each episode, we share new discoveries in the history of American enterprise and its impact on the world, made by researchers using our collections. My name is Owen Bracha. I'm a professor at the University of Texas School of Law in Austin, Texas. Uh, my main fields of expertise are intellectual property law and legal history, and of course the intersection of the two. So I wrote, I did a lot of work about the history of intellectual property, specifically in Britain and the United States. My focus up to now has been mainly the history of patents and copyrights, and I've started to shift in the direction of the history of, of trademarks and trademark law, which is sort of a separate, different area within intellectual property with its own different logic. Um, patents and copyrights are more similar to each other. Trademarks are kind of different. And again, I'm shifting in that direction, which is what brought me here, basically. So, so the current project, it's a big project. What it's going to be exactly, it's not clear yet because there is an a lot of archival effort involved. So we'll see what that actually yields. But generally speaking, the current project is about the history of trademarks and brand, brands and brand names, um, and specifically about what lawyers did in this respect. Um, and the search for archival sources is, of course, what brought me here to the Hagley, which, which gives me sort of a unique opportunity to look at sources which are not readily available in many other places. Um, so the project, as I said, is about the history of trademarks and, and brand names. And, and you know, there are two, I, I suppose, big ways of, of stating the, the questions or, or the topic I'm focused on there. One way, it's really two different ways of looking at the same thing. One way of looking at it, at it is basically the economic, social, cultural phenomenon of brand names okay so it's pretty obvious if you think about it that we live in a brand name society brands as in as in those you know symbols which are owned by corporations and you know attract a lot of investments by corporations and symbolize all the good associations associated with the corporations are pretty important these days and you know it, it and it happened it wasn't always that way. There was a process in which this phenomenon emerged. It started in the late 19th century and then into the 20th century. And the question there would be, so how did that happen? How did that come to be? And there is a rather familiar narrative that focuses more or less on advertisement, which is, of course, a huge, important part of the story. What I hope to be adding there is the claim that actually lawyers in conjunctions with advertisement people and corporate executives had an important role to play in that process in the rise of and in, in importance of uh, trademarks and more and more generally brands so that's one way of framing the question the other way of framing basically as i said the same question is from the standpoint of legal history and within legal history uh the more or less familiar narrative is about the change or transformation of trademark law, the branch of the law that deals with trademarks and brands. 
from a rather narrow technical field of law concerned basically with fraud or accurate communication. The idea of those symbols basically communicating to consumers the origin of goods and services. You buy this particular soft drink, you see the mark Coca-Cola, you know it comes from the corporation Coca-Cola, and trademark law is basically serving that function, making sure that I don't sell any soft drink and misrepresent its origin as Coca-Cola. That's the origin of trademark law in the mid-19th century, more or less. In a way that tracks the economic, social, cultural story of the rise of brands, trademark law has changed greatly since those days. Of course, it still, it still is preoccupied with that technical function of trademarks. But these days, it's much more about general ownership of brand names, which, again, is much a broader, capacious idea than uh, just protecting accurate communications about source of goods. It's about protecting all the value and all the good associations that come with the brand. And it's about the general attitude of basically property. So that's the distinction between trademarks as, as a very narrow communication device and trademark as a property right. This is mine. You don't get to use the, my trademark in ways I don't like or, or ways I think do not facilitate my commercial interest. That's the modern story of trademarks. There's a long sort of detailed legal history how we got there. And again, um, what I think I have to contribute from this perspective is really the role of lawyers. So the current narrative within legal history is sort of history from top down. It's focused on formal legal sources, you know, big legal decisions by courts, treatises, and it tracks the way the, again, this abstract general concept, legal concept of trademark has changed. I think what my thesis, and you know, we'll see whether it's borne out by the materials, is that a lot of the change actually came from below. And here we, again, we connect to the other story, basically by lawyers doing everyday boring stuff, you know, giving advice, writing cease and desist letters, talking to corporate executives, to some, so, to some extent litigation as well, but doing the everyday lawyerly boring stuff, sort of the proprietary attitude, you might say, as well as the concept emerged from there. And this is what I'm looking for from that direction. And again, the story about lawyers and their everyday practices actually sort of connects it to the ground and puts in real human agency into the story. So that's from that perspective. Now, to the conversation with, as I said, the history of advertisement and cultural history, I think what it adds there is the role of lawyers, which was sort of left in the shadow for, I don't know if good, but unsurprising reasons, right? Because lawyers, to be frank, did the boring stuff. They did write boring memos. Um, they certainly did not create the glossy, attractive advertisements and all of that. Uh, but again, I think that at the end of the day, um, those practices contributed contributed two things, I think. The first one is, again, this proprietary attitude, this basic attitude of this is mine, we have to protect it, we have to police it, right? As opposed to all the creative ways in which, you know, advertisement people and executives sometimes came came up with of how to exploit it, how to create brands and branding through advertisement, etc. 
I think lawyers really pushed into the in the proprietary uh, direction, which is really really important because it, that's a really important aspect of you know what brands are today. Um, and second, and relatedly, lawyers sort of translated that general proprietary attitude into specific practices. So, you know, so what does it mean to have a proprietary attitude? On some level, it means to sue people who use your brand name in ways you don't like, and not necessarily because they confuse the public. You know, so to use a very modern example, uh, if somebody sells a poster that says, enjoy cocaine with a co something close to the Coca-Cola trademark on it, you sue them. Why? Because it's yours and they dilute in your good associations, okay, of the of the brand name. So to some, to some extent it has been that, but it's much more than that. And so again, when you look at what lawyers actually are doing today and have been doing throughout the decades, uh, there's a whole industry there of policing the meaning of the mark. I don't know to what extent people are aware of that, but on a daily basis, basically, those lawyers were sending letters to media outlets and other corporations telling them, you know, don't use my mark, or, or if you use my mark, use it this way or use it that way. Um, don't say cellophane with a small C, write cellophane with a capital C. Uh, there's a whole set of practices there that actually sort of actualizes the property approach, and I think that's added to the story as well. Uh, and finally, it's related to this question, but that was my third point from the previous questions I just remembered. Uh, so this is more of a scholarly debate, but I think the project speaks to this scholarly debate. There, there is debate there, at least among legal historians and legal uh, sociologists, about the idea of law as an ideology. Okay, so there is and there used to be that debate. One side of the debate the so-called critical side of the debate argues law is an ideology. Law sort of informs the views of people, what they think about the world, how they act in the world, etc. Another side of the debate, usually it's the more sociological side, is more skeptical. Uh, and there are very various doubts there, but one of the biggest doubts is who cares about the law anyway? You know, you lawyers and lawyer and legal historians are sort of confused. You're completely enmeshed in that and therefore you assume that people care about the law and their views are informed about the law but you know first of all most people have no idea what the law is about a specific issue and second even if they do why should they care about it or impute a lot of importance to that etc the response to that again from the critical side has been no you misunderstood what we mean by ideology by ideology we don't mean people going and reading Supreme Court opinions and then form in a rational way their views about stuff on that basis. Rather, we mean that law and legal practices are constitutive of people's view. You know, basically, law without us noticing in many ways defines the world for us. You know, it defines stuff like a corporation, a partnership, divorce, marriage. Much of it comes from the law. But if that is the case, if that is the argument now one actually has to show how it happens, right? So what are the mechanisms? Again, given the fact that most people are not lawyers, most people don't know perhaps anything about trademark law, right? So how does it happen? This is an instance of how it happens, right? With lawyers being particularly important agents, they're going between the more abstract and technical concepts of the law that indeed most people don't, don't know, 
and everyday practices of other fields like advertisements and corporate executives and even, you know, small business people. So, you know, I told you the story about, of what the project is about and hopefully that sounds fine and interesting and all of that. And now you come to think about, okay, how do I go about finding sources for that? Turns out it's a huge challenge, right? So what are the sources for those everyday practices of lawyers? You know, one thing that a naive historian might think about, hey, law firms, right? What lawyers did law firms? Yeah, you should realize pretty quickly that law firms, first of all, not many of them have the sources that go that far back. But even if they do, they won't let anyone look at them. Lawyers are have really, really, you know, a god in proprietary. If you talk about proprietary attitude towards their document, they won't let me look at them. Although I'm still trying through all sorts of backdoors and whatever, I probably won't get access to the law firm's materials. Okay, then I had all sorts of amusing experiences with operating living corporations, right? So corporate archives, there you go. Another great option. Turns out private corporations don't like historians snooping around their materials either. Okay? And I'll spare you the stories, but I had all sorts of amusing experiences in my communications with their PR uh, departments or what have you. So that's blocked as well which eventually led me to focus on corporate archives that ended up being held in more or less public or research-oriented hands, hence the hacker. Okay? Um, and specifically, so generally what I took interest in here was the first thing that really attracted me, me was the DuPont materials, right? So DuPont is an excellent example of a big, important corporation that was around early on. Um, I knew it had some interesting and important experiences with trademark law. So that was very attractive to begin with. And then I started looking around and found out, of course, that the Hagley had many other corporate records files. So that was attractive as well. So that started the search uh, of, as you can see, a very large perimeter, right? Uh, so here is the needle and the haystack. You have to look usually for the legal files or some files about trademarks, sometimes the advertisement departments of those corporations, etc. Talking about periods, I, I'm still struggling with the earlier periods. As you go back in time, basically before the 1920s, things dry up and it's very hard to find useful stuff beyond the very, very technical stuff, which is not helpful. Like, you know, just the, the list of the trademark registrations, etc. Um, still, I've been able to find some interesting materials, both from the many, many DuPont collections and from some of the other collections of other corporations. So um, um, the Sigran records, for example, that I know that other business historians worked with uh, yielded a lot of interesting finds, actually too much there in ways that you know I have to sort of prioritize. So first of all, and certainly about the DuPont materials, um, that's not a big surprise. That's the way it tends to work, but sort of the biggest traces, heavy traces in the record are at the end of the day left by litigation. So when there was litigation about something, that really left a trail of documents behind. Most importantly, in the DuPont case, and to the best of my knowledge, it hasn't been studied 
closely before, certainly not from the archival perspective, is the cellophane case. So basically, in the 1930s, DuPont was involved in a series of litigations trying to protect their cellophane trademarks um, against various corporations. Basically, at the end of the day, they lost their, their trademark, their very valuable brand cellophane was announced to be generic, which means it's a legal term that means that the term cellophane, the, so the court said, came to denote for the public not a particular brand or source, but rather the class of products in general, uh, which means at which point you lose trademark protection, which, in which point more or less becomes free for all to use. And sort of in the annals of trademark law and trademark history, this is a huge landmark. People always talk about, you know, the, the cellophane case. And it turns out there are boxes and boxes uh, from the various cellophane litigations. And they're very interesting to me, to some extent, just to look at the litigation and how it developed, but also because that's one of the places where you find traces for those other practices, which, are, which is not the litigation itself. So, for example, there are some files that contain a lot of those um, cease and desist letters or sometimes just, you know, friendlier reminder letters where the DuPont legal department was sending everybody around. There are like hundreds and hundreds of memos like that uh, to newspapers and trade circulars and some other small businesses about how they should use the term cellophane and et cetera, et cetera, stuff like that. Scattered around the different files, there's also, there are also other kinds of, you know, correspondence like that. It's more scattered. But again, it attempts to enforce the trademark, to police the trademark, uh, to decide whether to do anything about uses by others. So that, th those are the DuPont files. Um, the Seagram files basically is even a bigger challenge for me because there is so much. Seagram, uh, early on, you know, been basically, I think, pioneering in branding and using the trademarks, which means there's a lot of materials there. And many of them are, again, very technical, just sort of classifications and records of, of the registration. Uh, worldwide, by the way, not just the, the, the main corporation is headquarters in Canada, but they were very active in the U.S. as well. And worldwide, generally, you can see how a trademark becomes an asset. Right? Just sort of the bureaucratic practices of recording everything and registering everything and renewing registration and what are we doing about our property in Uruguay and what are we doing about our property in Hungary, etc. Um, but also, and again, it's scattered and hard to find, but it's nice when, it was nice when I was able to find it. A lot of internal and not a lot, but some internal and external correspondence about how exactly to police the mark, what to do about this or that incidence of use by somebody else, uh, assignments, which is also another interesting instance of you know property emerging from below, assigning the trademark to others. Can you do that? How do you do that? Um, this not surprising, but interesting relationship in trademark history in between, you know, developments in the legal profession and the developments of the field itself. And generally, in trademark, this, this growth begins around the 1870s. 
and later on. That is to say, within the legal profession, you begin to see law firms that specialize in this area. Often, but not always, it would be the same law firms which are specialized in patent law. Um, so you begin to see this field beginning to emerge in legal practice. The uh, U.S. Trademark Law Association is formed, I think, in the late 1870s. The first trade, Federal Trademark Act is passed in the 1870s. The U.S. Trademark Association becomes very active. Um, and this is also the era of the rise of, of trademark law, although it existed in some sort of diluted form beforehand as an important area of the law. Now, in those first decades, from 1870 onward, from what I've been able to see, and that's not surprising, this is what one would expect, a lot of this, as you say, happens uh, uh, not in-house, but rather firms basically acquire the services of some external lawyer or counsel. Um, and for many firms, that's the way it goes on well into the 20th century, you know, for smaller businesses, even today, they would acquire, of course, the services of an external counsel. Now, in-house legal departments, and especially in the area of intellectual property law, generally begin to appear in the late 19th century. Sometimes it is the, it's the 1880s, but that would be the early beginnings. And it usually happens in the context of patents, which are even more important for at least research-oriented corporations. This is when in-house legal departments begin to appear. And at that point, with those big corporations, they begin to shift, or perhaps a bit later on, very late 19th century, early 20th century, they begin to shift a lot of their trademark business to those in-house council departments as well, at least within the bigger corporations. Certainly, Sigram, that basically, you know, again, had a huge trademark business going on. The same with DuPont. I haven't been able to point, point, pinpoint exactly when, but probably sometime around the very first decades of the 20th century, they shifted in a lot of the business, trademark business, legal business, in-house. So again, there are two main ways of thinking about trademarks and brands. And, and both, both of them coexist, basically. It's not like the one excludes the other. The one is trademark. A trademark basically is a tool for empowering and facilitating consumer preferences. You know you want, you as a consumer know you want that particular product from that particular manufacturer. The trademark helps you to easily and costlessly find it. Okay, this is empowering consumer choice. And this is the traditional story about trademarks. Trademarks as brands, and everybody acknowledges that these days, is something very different. Those are about shaping consumer preferences rather than assuming pre-existing consumer preferences and now helping the consumer find what she wants, a brand name is about shaping the consumer preferences. A brand name, of course, with all the advertisement and public relations investment that goes with it, is what accounts to the phenomenon of people in blind tasting, you know, taste two soft drinks. They're exactly the same, but they're told that the one is Coca-Cola and the one which they've been told is Coca-Cola somehow tastes better. And you can actually measure it, you know, the brain, the brain activity. It actually tastes better. Why? Because of the brand power of shaping preferences, basically. This is brand. This is what a brand is as opposed to a technical trademark. Now, okay, so what does my story have to tell us about it? Look, I don't want to push the argument 
too far. I do concede that the basic understanding that we're shaping consumer preferences, and this is what it is about, no doubt came from and was pushed heavily by the advertisement people. There's a whole, again, story about the rise of psychological advertisement in the early 20th century, etc. That came from the advertisement people. I think what lawyers contributed to that, first of all, understanding that development, but second, what they contributed to that is, again, the proprietary approach. The proprietary approach is not so much the insight of, hey, we're shaping consumer preferences here, and that's of value, but rather the understanding of, hey, that's of value, and there's a huge corporate asset here, one which we should protect against the whole world, basically. Thank you for listening to Stories from the Stacks. For more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society, and the Hagley Museum and Library, visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G.